0: But we are looking tonight at First Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this evening. So let's uh, read it together. Uh, let's stand together and read First uh, Corinthians 9, 1 through 14. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also... Say these things. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for your sake? For our sake. Yes, for our sake it was written, Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again tonight for your wonderful word. Lord, that it is so um, truthful, it's so revealing. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, you have dealt with issues that are essential for life and godliness. You've given us everything we need in that regard. And Lord, tonight, as we think about our liberty uh, in Christ, help us to understand the principles that Paul's communicating so that we can limit our liberty in such a way that would bring glory and honor to Christ. And Lord, we don't want to hinder the gospel in any way, don't want to cause anyone stumbles. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to be gracious and that uh, we might learn these principles and not only uh, know what uh, your word says, but also be doing those things. So Lord, we pray again tonight that you would uh, be pleased with our worship, our hearts would be set on you, and Lord, that you would uh, bless our fellowship together and uh, our uh, focus on your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul set out the limits of Christian liberty. These are limits that are determined by the law of love, or in other words, by sincere concern for the well-being of other believers. He summarizes this principle as, Take care, lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block To the weak. That's chapter 8, verse 9. The basic premise is our rights end where another believer is offended. J. Vernon McGee wrote, You have a perfect right to swing your fist any way you want to, but where my nose begins, your liberty ends. Well, in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul illustrates how he followed this principle in his own life. In verses 1 through 18, he discusses his right to be financially supported by those he ministers to. In verses 1 through 14 that we read just a few minutes ago, he sets forth this right. In verses 15 through 18, he gives the reason why he would not, take advantage of that right, in verses 19 to 27, he explains that he would be willing to give up any and every right for the sake of winning men to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul also here defends his apostleship, which he does in several places, because it was challenged by many. And, of course, the only reason Paul does that is to validate the truth of Scripture that God gave him as an apostle because there's too much at stake. But here in chapter 9, he gives us six reasons why he had the right to be supported by the churches he ministered to. And even though his purpose here is to illustrate his main point, which is the principle of limiting our liberty for the sake of weaker brothers. We also learn a lot from this passage in regard to how we are to support those in Christian service. And so let me make sure you hear what I'm saying. His main purpose is to illustrate limiting Christian liberty. That's his main purpose. But under that, as maybe a sub-point or application, we can also learn a lot in this passage in regard to how churches are to support those in Christian ministry. So that's what we're going to see tonight. The first reason that he gives here applies only to Apostles. And listen carefully. There are no apostles today, regardless of what those in the new apostolic reformation may say. And you may be exposed to that here and there in AR, uh, but there are no apostles today. Of course, there are apostles, small a, in the sense of sent ones. We're all apostles in that regard, but there are no apostles, capital A, uh, anymore. So this first one doesn't apply to us. We're going to look at it pretty much in depth, but it doesn't really apply to us. The other five reasons, though, that he gives apply to every pastor and every Christian worker in Church history. So the application of this passage is wider than merely illustrating the principle of limiting our liberty. But the first reason that Paul gives for why he had a right to be supported by the church is he was an apostle. He was an apostle. Look with me again at verses 1 through 6. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? There's a lot there. Let's see if we can unpack that a little bit. Paul uses a number of rhetorical questions here, and the answer to each is assumed to be yes. The answer should be yes. He begins with the question, Am I not free? The Corinthians really were hung up on their freedom or their rights as Christians. So when Paul asks, Am I not free? he is implying, I have no less freedom than you do, and I cherish my freedom just as much as you do. However, he will go on to say, I cherish some other things even more than I do my freedom. And one of those things that he cherished even more was not causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble. The Christian life is about giving up to gain. Giving up to gain. As followers of Christ, we often have to die to self in order to gain God's best. And for the sake of others, this means putting others first for Christ's sake. Well, Paul goes on to ask a second rhetorical question. Am I not an apostle? Of course, the answer is yes, Paul. You are an apostle. Paul was clearly identified in scripture as an apostle, but because he was one as of one born out of due time, as he wrote in chapter 15, verse 8, there were always some who questioned his apostleship. He was not one of the twelve. So at various points, he has to provide verification for his apostleship, and this is one of those places where he does that. And here he will give two points of verification. The first one is found in the next rhetorical question, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This was the primary requirement for anyone claiming to be An apostle. You have to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And by the way, that is one of the main reasons why we can emphatically say there are no apostles today. None of us have been eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And there are all these people out there claiming to be apostles, but none of them are. There are no longer any eyewitnesses. Of the resurrected Christ but there were some in the first century and in particular we know that Jesus had chosen the twelve to be with him and to serve as his apostles and of course we know that Judas betrayed him and then he committed suicide and then they went on to appoint Matthias to replace Judas. And these were the twelve apostles. But Paul came along later. And Paul was commissioned by Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But because he was not among the original twelve, some questioned his apostleship. And yet we know from Scripture that he had seen the resurrected Christ on at least three different occasions, really four. The first one, obviously, was when he met Christ on the road to D- Damascus at his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And you can read that on your own. But that was obviously a time where he met Christ. In addition to that, we know that we know of at least two visions. Paul had of the risen Christ, one is recorded in Acts 18 verses uh, 9 and 10, the other is recorded in Acts 22 verses 17 and 18, where Paul had visions of Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us that Paul was personally taught by Christ in the wilderness for three years before he began his ministry. So there's absolutely no reason to question Paul's apostleship. He goes on to give, though, a second verification in the next rhetorical question. Are you not my work in the Lord? The Corinthians themselves were proof of his apostleship. It goes on in verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The very church at Corinth was evidence of Paul's apostleship. This church was the fruit of his apostolic ministry. You know, one way you can tell if someone has a legitimate ministry is by looking at the fruits. What kind of fruit is being produced? And that's what we have here. Notice that Paul uses the word seal here. In ancient times, seals were used on containers or merchandise or letters or on other things to indicate the authenticity of what was inside and to prevent the contents from being substituted or altered in any way. Now, we've seen the same thing, really, in modern times. Several years ago, you may remember, there were some crazy people who started putting poison in products like Tylenol. And so the government stepped in and required all products to be sealed, right? So you would know it hasn't been tampered with. And so if you buy something at the store and you notice the seal's been broken, you probably don't want to use that product because there's danger. It could have been contaminated. And the idea is what is under the seal is genuine. This is how Paul is using this word. And he's saying, you Corinthian believers are my seal verifying... My apostolic ministry. But go on to verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Now, this is typical courtroom terminology here. It's like he's a defense attorney in a court of law. And beginning in verse 4, he raises his rights as an apostle. Look at verse 4. Do we not have a right to eat? And drink? What's this all about? Well, it has to do with the responsibility of the church in general to support the apostles of the Lord financially. Any place where the apostles went, the Christians were to supply their needs, their basic needs, food and drink, etc. So he's saying, as an apostle of Christ, Do I not have a right to expect at least food and drink will be provided for me? Now, the New Testament also applies this expectation to all ministers of God. But in this case, Paul is pointing to his own life as an example. So it is in the context here of apostles rightfully expecting the churches to supply their basic needs. But go on to verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? This tells us that the rest of the apostles were married, and the assumption is that they took their wives with them when they traveled, and the expectation was that their wives' needs would also be taken of as, as well, care of as well. And Paul, of course, was single, but his point that if he was married, he would have the very same right as the other married apostles. And though he chose the status of singleness... He had every right in the Lord to be married. He also had the right, as did the other apostles, to take his wife with him as he ministered and to have her supported along with him. That's what Paul's saying here. MacArthur writes, I believe this verse supports the principle of paying pastors, evangelists, Missionaries and other Christian workers enough so that their wives do not have to work so that they can have more time to be with their husbands in the ministry. Now, that would certainly be an application of this principle. The phrase to take along with means to carry about in one's company. The essence of this is that the wives go with their husbands as they travel around to various locations to minister in the churches. And that Paul says this is important that you support not only these apostles, in this case, evangelists, missionaries, but also their wives. You know, it has long been known that one of the key contributing factors for ministers who end up getting a divorce is that of not spending enough time with their mates. And those who have a ministry that requires a lot of traveling, like evangelists, missionaries, that kind of thing, often set themselves up for temptations and marriage problems. So the idea is that of supporting these men in such a way that they can take their wives with them, and even beyond that, it implies paying pastors enough so that their wives don't have to work outside the home and can be there for their husbands and their families. And by the way, I'm extremely thankful for that in this congregation. I'm grateful for the way... This church provides for its pastors in such a way that frees us up to devote ourselves to full-time ministry and at the same time to have solid marriages and families. I'm very grateful for that. But I believe that's what God intends, and that's implied here. Look at verse 6. Or only, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Now, this question is a little difficult, but he, in essence, is asking this. Do Barnabas and I not have a choice about doing this kind of work? In other words, they don't necessarily have to go as missionaries around the world their salvation would not be affected if they chose to stay at home. Paul's authority as an apostle would not be negated if he did not go and do this particular work. Of course, later Paul states in verse 16, he really doesn't have a choice. He's under compulsion to his calling... And he says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And by the way, that is how every man feels who is called, genuinely called to the ministry, under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And listen, if you don't feel that kind of compulsion, don't go into the ministry. That is essential. But if Paul was not called into this ministry, he could have given himself to a trade that would have more than adequately met the needs of his family. And so what he is saying here is that Paul and Barnabas had as much right as the others to get their livelihood from the ministry without having to work another job on the side. Now, we know Paul did, in fact, work at tent-making on the side, but that was his choice. It was his choice. Paul and Barnabas did not pay their own way because they were obligated to do so. They did it voluntarily. But as far as Paul's right as an apostle, he could have insisted on this and the churches would have been responsible to provide it. That's what he's getting at. So we have seen the first reason why Paul had the right to be supported was because he was an apostle. And this one does not apply to any of us today because none of us are apostles. But he goes on to give a second reason, which is it is customary. It's customary. Look with me at verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now here Paul gives three illustrations to show that paying workers is customary. As he does in much of this chapter... He makes his point through rhetorical questions, and the answers are obvious. In this case, the answer to each of these questions should be, no one, no one. Let's look at each of these. First of all, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Soldiers don't fight during the day and then work a civilian job at night in order to eat buy clothes, and have a place to stay. Soldiers do not serve at their own expense. They are provided with food, clothing, arms, lodging, and whatever else they need to live and fight effectively. So this is very obvious. Secondly, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Farmers do not plant a vineyard or cultivate a crop for someone else without being paid. They do not farm for free and then do other work to earn a living. No, they eat the fruit of their farming. They are either paid in money or in a share of the crops. Or maybe in chickens, I don't know. But they're paid for their work. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.6 says, The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Even slaves in those days were allowed to share in the fruit of the crops. This was just customary. This was expected. There's a third question. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Shepherds don't work for free either. They don't deal with all those smelly sheep just because they enjoy it. And all three types of workers are paid for their work, and it is customary, rightful, and the expected thing to do. Why should that not be true also of God's workers? Well, Paul gives another reason. It is God's law. It's God's law. Look at verses 8 through 11. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking all for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? The principle of Workers being paid for their work is not merely according to human judgment as was given in the previous illustrations. God's law also teaches the same thing. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 22 and is part of the law of Moses. The comment that God is not concerned about oxen does not mean that God has no interest in the welfare of animals. So, if anyone from PETA is live streaming tonight, don't misunderstand this. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Lord prepares for the raven its nourishment. That's Job 38, verse 41. And that He gives the beast its food, Psalm 147, 9. Jesus spoke of the Heavenly Father feeding the birds of the air, Matthew 6.26. But in spite of that, God's primary concern is not for animals, but for people. And so the point is, if a farmer is going to make sure he provides for his ox, then how much more should the church provide for its ministers? And understand, Paul had every right to apply this to himself. If men working for men should be paid for their labor, then surely men working for God should be paid for theirs. Now, Paul put it this way, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? the only difference in the principle as applied to the Lord's service is that material payment is given for spiritual work. And, of course, the Lord provides his own spiritual rewards. But his people are to provide the material reward and to provide it generously, as we know Paul calls for double honor. And that has to do with financial support in 1 Timothy 517. Now, obviously, we should give our money only to ministries that are biblically sound and responsible. Not every appeal that is made in the Lord's name is deserving of the support of God's people. And we should be wise. That is an important part of our stewardship. But When we give to a servant who is worthy and is faithful in the proclamation of God's word, we should give happily, generously, and trustingly. And notice the word if in verse 11 makes this conditional. The material support is only for those who have been faithful in sowing spiritual things. There's a conditional clause here. And it's insightful to note that uh, what took place in the support of Paul and his ministry. The churches of Macedonia, uh, the churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and perhaps some others, consistently supported Paul financially. They did this when he worked among them, but also later as he went on as a missionary after he left their presence. In addition to that, they also gave generously to help other churches. And we read in Second Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, in that a great ordeal of affliction that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They gave generously. He said, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, Not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so we see the generosity of these churches demonstrated here. Folks, God blesses that abundantly. Giving to the Lord's workers is really giving to the Lord himself. MacArthur says, God's children are to reflect their heavenly Father's generosity. 2 Corinthians nine six put it this way, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. As individuals and as churches, Christians who give generously to the Lord's work will be greatly blessed by the Lord. And those who support his servants will be rewarded by God. The Bible is clear. It is the Lord's will that we are generous to our pastors, our missionaries, our evangelists, our educational workers, all those who are servants of the Lord. But there's a fourth reason for supporting those in Christian service, and that is it is done for others. Is done for others. Look at verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul's fourth reason for having a right to be supported in his ministry was that, the Corinthians had apparently always supported their pastors. And those they now supported or had supported in the past included Peter and Apollos. And so, as this church's founding pastor and as an apostle, Paul had even more claim to support than the others. But he did not use this right in spite of the many reasons that he had to justify his right to be supported. He waived that right. He said, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul was willing to practice the principle of giving up to gain. The word for endure there is a word that means to bear or to pass over in silence. It is in the Greek present tense, which means it's continual action. This indicates that throughout his entire ministry, Paul continued to bear the load and to, without complaint, do whatever it took to fulfill his ministry. His customary way of life was that of self-denial. He worked as a tent maker to support not only himself, but others in the ministry. Paying his own way was one means of causing no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul did not want new converts or potential converts to have any reason to think that he was preaching the gospel for selfish reasons. And he wanted no one thinking that he was in the ministry for the sake of making money or enjoying an easy living. And remember now, Paul preached mostly to Gentiles who were steeped in paganism. Not only the gospel itself, but also its Old Testament background was completely foreign to these Gentiles. So he did not want the message to be clouded in any way. The other apostles and the New Testament prophets worked largely among the Jews who were accustomed to the Lord's ministers being supported by the people. But Paul wanted to take away any offense among the Gentiles that he was seeking to evangelize. Now, in our day and time, Preachers who make merchandise of the gospel can magnify this same misconception concerning support of the Lord's work. Christian workers must be very careful not to convey the idea of gaining from the gospel and thus convey a false message to the world. And folks, I'm afraid that far too many health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers and TV evangelists have done this very thing in our day and time. I just heard this week about a pastor that's living in a multi-million dollar mansion. And he can do that because he's pastor of a megachurch. Folks, that's shameful. And it can send the wrong message to the world. And, of course, we need to be careful always concerning those that we support. And uh, so there's much discernment that's needed here. Well, Paul gives a fifth reason. and We'll need to speed this up a little bit. It is the universal pattern. It's the universal pattern. Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar. Now, uh, this fifth reason that Paul gives for having a right to be supported goes back to the Old Testament practices in Israel. Having a right to be supported by the churches he served is in line with the universal pattern of that was established in the priesthood in Israel the priests those who performed the sacred services were supported by the tides of the crops and by the animals as well as the sacrifices brought by the people whom they ministered in the temple. And so the the idea here is this is a universal pattern was established back in the Old Testament under the temple uh, service. So this is another justification for this expectation. And then finally, number six, Jesus ordained it. Jesus ordained it. Look with me at verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Both God's law and God's Son teach that His prophets, teachers, and ministers are to be paid for their work in the Lord. The New Testament teaching reiterates that of the Old Testament. Paul may have been Referring here to Jesus' instructions to the 70 in Luke 10:7, or he might have been referring to an otherwise unrecorded teaching of the Lord, or to a special revelation that was given to him. Now, we don't know, but in any case, Jesus personally taught this truth. And again, just because Paul himself waived this right. this support that in no way negates the responsibility of the church to provide it. Those who faithfully proclaim the gospel have a right to expect to get their living from the gospel. And I'm glad we're doing this sermon now instead of just before budget time. Anyway, these are the principles that we're to follow. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for again for your word is so practical and so helpful and lord if we'll just live by it we'll have your blessing so lord we uh, pray that you would uh, encourage us tonight through this and lord ultimately we know it has to do with liberty and has to do with limiting liberty and giving up to gain and lord help us to learn to do that by your grace in jesus name amen